Bridge Bank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to the risk takers, the game changers, and the disruptors. Bridge Bank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. Bridge Bank, be bold, venture wisely. Hi there, I'm Randad Fattah from Throughline. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Mina Kim. Coming up on Forum, our nation is mourning 19 children and two teachers gunned down on Tuesday at Robb Elementary in Uvalde, Texas, and the horror of the shooting, the profound grief of loved ones, and the trauma of witnesses have become agonizingly commonplace. It's been less than two weeks since the mass shooting that killed black grocery shoppers in Buffalo, just days since the attack on Taiwanese churchgoers at Laguna Woods. And as it happens, today marks one year since nine people were killed by a co-worker at a transit yard in San Jose. The ever-increasing number of Americans who survived a mass shooting and the toll they bear, that's next on Forum. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Americans everywhere keep learning the details and absorbing the horror of the massacre at Robb Elementary School in Uvalde, Texas, 19 children and two teachers gunned down in their classroom. This hour, we look at the impacts, the trauma, the terror that mass shootings can have on those who survive them, who witness them, who respond to them. But first, we learn more about the victims. Sergio Martinez Beltran joins us, a reporter with the Texas Newsroom at KUT Austin, who's been covering Uvalde. Sergio, thanks so much for being with us. Hey, Mina, thanks for having me. So tell us what more you have been learning about the children and the teachers who died. Yeah, so, you know, we know that in total, there's 19 children and two adults who are confirmed dead. 17 people were injured. And uh, what we know so far is that they're still alive, uh, but sustaining injuries. Uh, because it's an elementary school, we, we know that the students at Rob uh, were in second third and fourth grade of the two adults, like I said, at least one was a teacher. And, you know, I mean, I think one of the saddest things about this whole this whole tragedy is that many of the kids that were killed received awards for being on the honor roll, for having good grades hours before the shooting. Um, so that's one thing that, that we've been hearing parents and family members and community members talk about is about how these kids were celebrating hours before the shooting and their parents were with them before. Now, um, most, if not all of the victims were actually in one classroom. That's the room where the gunman barricaded himself and started shooting. Uh, you've mentioned that uh, the parents were there celebrating Uvalde is a close-knit community, isn't it? Mostly Latino or Hispanic. Uh, can you tell us, does, is it true? It feels like everyone knows each other there. 
Oh, yes, yes. You know, it is a small town. It's about 16,000 people. 73% of them identify as Hispanic. Um, and, you know, as, as, as someone who is Hispanic, I can tell you, you know, the culture, right? Uh, we're all about <laughs> being with each other and, and being up on each other's businesses, but also helping people out, right? And so everyone seems to know each other. There, I think that, you know, our reporters who have been on the ground at Uvalde um, ha have said that, you know, when they talk to neighbors or, or people, you know, it seems like everyone is interconnected to each other. Everyone knows about each other and, and everyone feels like they know one or two or all of the victims. Uh, and, you know, we're seeing we're seeing that on social media as well. Everyone seems to be mourning the victims because, like I said, they were family and friends, especially when we talk about the teacher, uh, one of the teachers who, who was killed. We have seen so many memorials of people saying, hey, we know her. She taught us. She taught my kids. So it's been very hard for, for the community. Yeah, those posts have been really heartbreaking. Can you just mm -hmm. remind us what the parents and relatives <sighs> have been going through earlier before the posts of people acknowledging those lost. There were so many posts of parents and relatives who were searching for their missing children. As you've said, all the dead have now been identified, but just give us a sense of what you learned about what they went through. Yeah, you know, parents, of course, when they learned about the shooting, they rushed to the school. Um, and as it usually happens with these types of shootings and tragedies, the law enforcement agencies create a perimeter and they don't allow family or, or others to come in. So there was a reunification center that was set up. Uh, and that's where a lot of the family members went to. They went to the reunification center hoping to, to see their kids. They also went to the police station. They also went to the school. They went to different sites to to try to just to, to figure out where their loved ones were and uh, we do know that on Tuesday night uh, hours after the shooting there were still parents who didn't know uh, anything about their kids they didn't they didn't have an update and so um, we heard that parents went into law enforcement office and got their DNA swabbed so that could help identify the, the victims and see if there was a match. Um, and, you know, uh, I think that a lot of the, the videos out there show how parents were hoping for for their kids at this point to to maybe be lost or maybe uh, be with someone and not and not dead, because right. that's at the end of the day what happened. Yes, that they had run away and hid and it was just mm -hmm. a matter of, of finding them. You mentioned law enforcement in the perimeter. There are reports now, I believe the Texas Department of Public Safety has said that some 40 minutes to an hour passed mm -hmm. from when the gunman opened fire uh, to when ultimately the Border Patrol officer shot him. What are you learning about this, Sergio? Right, Mina, and it's important for, for the audience to also understand that we are getting a lot of conflicting information, even from law enforcement agencies. And I think that in part, it's because it's a very fluid situation. Um, so a lot of the things that we've reported, um, then we start getting new updates from law enforcement that, you know, maybe things had changed. So we're starting to get a lot of more information now on how long it, it took the police and law enforcement to get inside the school and engage with the suspect. What we know is that it was a border patrol team that ended up entering the school and killing the 18 year old suspect. We also know that 
The Texas Department of Safety, like you mentioned, said that 40 minutes to an hour elapsed from when the suspect fired the first shots to when he was killed. And, you know, on social media, there have been videos also circulating of, of that show people during that time standing outside of the school, yelling at law enforcement to go inside and help the little kids. And the, the videos are truly horrifying because you can hear the desperation in, in these people's voices begging police officers to go in and engage. Yes. How are the parents reacting to some of this? I, I know you say they're conflicting reports, but what is coalescing around at least the idea that there was a very long time that passed? I, I think there's a lot of frustration um, and there's a lot of pain. And to be honest, we're only a little bit over 48 hours since the shooting happened, right? So there's still a lot of processing that needs to happen. And I think that right now, a lot of the parents and family members are just dealing with the pain and the grief. Um, I don't, I don't know how truly how many are are thinking about whether the police act in the appropriate manner or, or not at this time, right? I think there's a lot of just pain and and a lot of stuff that needs to be figured out before 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 they act. Sergio, this is not the first shooting, mass shooting that you've covered. Um, mm. You've said that one thing you've heard from communities that you've reported on in the aftermath is is that people say to you, do not forget about us. What do you take that to mean? Yeah, um, it means that as reporters and just as people, we go into these communities, um, we flood the communities. Uvalde is a town of 16 people, for example, and there's no hotel availability. And when we already know there's a supply chain, there's supply chain limitations, all of us as reporters are going in the town to report for the next two weeks. And then we pull out and that's it. We move on to the next shooting because that's the reality in this country, right? There's always a shooting and there's always something happening. And we don't, we forget about, about the people. Uh, I can tell you, you know, this week is Rob Elementary. Uh, in 2019, in Texas in particular, it was the Odessa, the Midland Odessa shooting that killed eight. Um, in 2019, it was El Paso shooting that killed 23. In 2018, it was Santa Fe High School shooting that killed 10. Uh, and in 2017, it was the Southern End Springs Church shooting that killed 27. And uh, we don't talk about them anymore. And again, we report on this and, and these communities become the center of the story or, or you know, of, of everything for the next two weeks and then we leave and we don't follow up on how they're doing i mean these people are dealing with a reality that is so different to the reality that they had hours ago and they tell their stories to the world they ask people to act they are asking people to hear them and and create a change and then nothing happens and then we move on and so that's what i've heard from community members in other shootings. I was in Michigan when the Oxford High School shooting happened um, earlier this year. And that was one of the things that family and community members said. They were like, hey, don't forget about us. Um, because, because, you know, this happens so often that they already know what's going to happen. They tell these stories to you. They say this to you. What <clears throat> have you learned about how best to take care of yourself, uh, Sergio, as you report on this? Therapy, Mina, <laughs> you know, uh, truly, um, I, I think that that it's really hard. I, I actually, um, 
for this particular uh, shooting, I reached out to one of my colleagues uh, in another state who, in, in Colorado actually, who has covered uh, quite a bit of these shootings. And I was like, hey, like, I, I think I need some pointers here of how, how as a reporter, I'm able to, to take care of myself, but also report on the news and, and, and just help out. And one of the things that she said was, hey, you are also grieving probably. And so you have to talk to people, other reporters who have covered this issue and, and who has covered, who, who are covering the same shooting, but also who have covered past shootings and, and talk because you might think that you don't want to talk because you don't want to make yourself the center of the story. That's, I mean, we, yes. we hate to do that, right? But we have to talk with each other to try to figure out ways to to cope. And then honestly, like, yeah, reach out to mental health resources who can help us uh, stay afloat, not burn out, and also tell the stories of, of this community and, and keep them, keep the stories of this community in your radio and in your newspapers and in your TV shows. Yeah, I'm, I'm really struck by you saying that because part of it is also as we continue this conversation, as you move on to continue reporting this terrible event, Sergio, we will be talking about just the broad reach of mass shootings like this in terms of the impact, and the impact is so wide. So I, I'm sorry for this role that you have to play, but I so appreciate you coming on to play it. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that. Sergio Martinez Beltran, politics and government reporter for the Texas Newsroom at KUT Austin. Thanks so much for joining us. Always, Mina. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. We're talking about the school shooting in Uvalde, Texas, where a gunman opened fire on a classroom of largely bleed be fourth graders, killing 19 and two teachers. We'd like to know, listeners, how you or the people you know, maybe your kids, are reacting to Uvalde. How are you taking care of each other? You can share your thoughts by emailing us, forum at kqed.org. You can find us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. We're at kqedforum. You can give us a call at 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. We continue our conversation after the break. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Here's what we're talking about tomorrow. 
What do our wars say about us as Americans? And how have our politics shifted to shield our wars from view? Those are some of the questions Marine veteran Phil Clay tackles in his new collection of essays, Uncertain Ground. And if you have thoughts about the long-running lethal campaigns the U.S. carries out across the globe, or, or why to most Americans they're invisible, you can share those thoughts by emailing forum at kqed.org or leaving a voicemail ahead of the show at 415-553-3300. Today, we're absorbing the aftermath of the massacre at Robb Elementary in Uvalde, Texas. Since 1999, since Columbine, more than 311,000 students in K-12 schools in the U.S. have experienced gun violence on their campuses, and tens of millions have been touched by gun violence in their communities. That's according to data collected by the Washington Post. And of course, with Uvalde's 21 dead, that number only grows. Uvalde is the deadliest school massacre since a gunman or murdered 20 children and six adults at Sandy Hook Elementary School in Connecticut nearly a decade ago. Today also marks one year since the Bay Area's deadliest shooting at a transit yard that killed nine people. So we turn now to the toll borne by those who are exposed to mass shootings. And we turn to Washington Post Enterprise reporter John Woodrow Cox, who is the author of Children Under Fire, an American Crisis. Welcome, John. Thanks for having me. So when you learned of the shooting in Uvalde, you turned to report on the parents of children killed in Newtown in 2012 and parents and survivors of Parkland in 2017. Why? You know, uh, I think partly to represent the long tail, right? That this this is a community of people uh, and which says something about who we are in this country and what we've allowed to continue to happen. And two, because I think it needed to represent, we people needed to understand that it's not a one-time event, that the trauma of a school shooting is not a singular moment. It is, it begins a journey. Uh, and that journey um, includes being re-traumatized over and over and over and being brought back to the worst day of your life over and over and over again, because we live in a country uh, where these events repeat themselves again and again. And that's uh, something that I just wanted, I wanted to represent what it was like for those uh, parents and survivors to say, uh, you know, here we are, here we are again. And what did you hear them say? Well, you know, one uh, one thing in particular was Nicole Hockley, who who lost her son Dylan in Sandy Hook. Um, she's been an activist ever since, uh, trying to fight for change, trying to prevent days like Tuesday from from happening. And you know, for her, it took her back. It took her back to being in the firehouse outside Sandy Hook and just hoping and and praying that her son somehow made it out, that he hid somewhere, that he ran somewhere. Uh, and then the moment where, you know, an officer asked her what he was wearing, and she had to say, uh, jeans and a red shirt and SpongeBob SquarePants underwear, um, so that they could identify his body. And that's what she was seeing in Texas all over again, you know, parents having to give samples of DNA because their children's bodies have been obliterated by AR-15. It's just uh, horrific to have to think back on that, which is exactly what what Nicole had to do. She had to relive all that, and she has to relive it every single time uh, there's another one of these events. Yeah, and it it is just nauseating to think that 
that you have this cadre of survivors to turn to in these moments because so many people have been affected by it. And then when I think about the tweets and posts I've been seeing of people talking about hugging their children or keeping them close as they drop them off at school before they have to let them go, or um, kids far from Texas saying that they're scared and making plans for how they'd escape a shooter, you just realize the broad reach of these events, and we actually have listeners who are calling to share how they are feeling about it here in California. Let me go to Victor in San Jose. Hi, Victor. Hey, Mina. Um, I uh, I recently, you know, uh, my uh, my wife is a is a kindergarten teacher here in uh, San Jose, and uh, when I, I you know when I heard about the shooting, uh, she actually she she woke me up in the morning. She told me about it, and the whole day I was just I was thinking about it because she has to go to school and to teach, teach her children. And, um, it's been very difficult for me as a husband, you know, to, you know, like I, to, to realize, you know, like that now, you know, she's in danger or something, you know, it's, I, uh, her, her effect on her students is, is, is so amazing. I can tell you that she had a student, um, that had left her class, uh, at, uh, was in her class for a few months and left. And he wrote her a letter, um, a little bit ago here asking her um, if he could still be her friend. Um, mm. She has such a dramatic and, and uh, such a, an amazing effect on her students and they love her so much. And, you know, it's, it's hard for me as a husband, you know, that I, I realize my wife is, has such an amazing ability to, to, uh, to, to be with her students and to, and to love her students and to see something like this happen, it tears me apart that, you know, what is, you know, do I, do I, I want to support her at the same time. I'm extremely, I'm extremely worried. I called the principal yesterday and I asked her, I was like, what is going on? What is happening? Can, is my wife safe? Is, is, is you, you know, they have more healthcare professionals at the school now and they have resource officers, but it's, this has affected me and a lot, and it's also affected her, but she loves her students. And I think people need to know this, that these teachers love their students and they have this amazing effect on them and we need to protect them as much as we can. Well, Victor, your wife sounds like an incredible teacher. And I just want to thank you for sharing that because John, when I hear Victor, all I can think about is what is this price that we're paying as a society with these mass shootings and not just the shootings themselves, but the unrelenting fear of mass shootings happening. Right, right. It's, it's, uh, it's a disease. It's a disease. And, and your caller perfectly illustrates the scope of this crisis, which is a, a point that I, I try to make as often as I can. We, we too often think about it as the kids who get shot, the kids who get wounded, the kids who are physically harmed. You know, the ripple of this event again, extends not a mile or two, it's thousands of miles. It's the entire country. People all over the country are affected. I often use lockdowns as a way to illustrate that point that, you know, in one school year that we looked at, somewhere between four and eight million children went through an actual lockdown, not a lockdown drill, but an actual lockdown. And a meaningful number of those kids thought, I might die in my school today. And we know that because they wept, they soiled themselves, they texted their parents goodbye, they, one kid wrote a will. Uh, he wrote a will saying, here's who I want my toys to go to when I die. 
none of these children actually got shot. There weren't even school shootings on their campuses. But the fear is real. And, you know, I, I, sometimes people want to compare it to, well, you know, uh, uh, kids in the 60s and 70s had to hide under their desks in case of a, a nuclear blast. And those didn't bother them in the same way. And what I would say is, well, no one dropped a nuclear bomb on a school in Florida or a school in Texas or a, a school in Connecticut. These are real things. These are real events that teachers and parents and kids are all aware of. And they know if it could happen somewhere else, it could happen to them. You're talking about this just from the effect of lockdowns, which, as you were saying, then the ripple effect expands to millions. But you've also pointed out that even the kids who were in close quarters at the school, who witnessed the deaths, um, who experienced that brush with mortality are also not counted as victims, right? Right, right. They're, they're not, not legally. I mean, there was something unique that happened in the Oxford shooting in, in Michigan uh, is that the prosecutor decided to charge the, the gunman, the teenage gunman, with terrorism. It was, a, it was a state charge, and it was a way for to consider those other people in the school uh, anybody who really had been affected as victims, legally as victims. And it's, it, to my knowledge, it's the first time that that was done. But it's uh, it's incredibly rare. Um, it's incredibly rare that uh, uh, something like that happens. The vast majority of the time, um, unless you're physically harmed, you're not considered a victim of anything. Tyke writes, I recently registered my daughter for kindergarten. I toured the school where anyone can walk through the campus or jump the low fence surrounding the school. No security, no one in the front office truly paying attention. Many schools are like this with multiple points of entry and no locks on the doors. This school clearly has little funding, and I'm frightened to send my small child to a school like this that is absolutely unprepared for the toxicity of this volatile landscape. You've talked about just how turning to having to secure schools, though, in many ways, and what, what Tyke is describing that Tyke needs to be wary of, just reflects such a failure of our society, John. Yeah, yeah it does. I mean, the, the, the fact that, you know, the solution, the idea for how we deal with this to harden schools is to make schools like, you know, airports or to, you know, have men with their 15s at every door is so ludicrous. I mean, it's so ludicrous that that's the that's where we go to spend billions of dollars on hardening schools. And the truth is, there's no evidence that those efforts actually uh, keep these events from occurring. We know, in fact, that dozens of school shootings have happened at schools where there were armed uh, resource officers. It happens, or uh, things like uh, metal detectors. But school shootings still happen at those places. Uh, you know what I often point out is that if after Columbine, if the one change, societal change that we had made was to say, we're not going to let children get their hands on guns anymore, more than half of the school shootings since Columbine would not have happened. If we had just done that one thing, if parents had just said, if adult gun owners had just said, I'm not going to let a kid get a hold of my gun, more than half of the school shootings just gone. Uh, but we, you know, we haven't done that and, and we won't. Let me go to caller Leslie in Bolinas. Hi, Leslie. Hi. Um, I um, I want to comment on the fact that um, over and over again, NPR has an expert 
um, on regarding how to talk to your children about what's happening in schools. And I always find their comments to be so, quite frankly, useless. Mm -hmm. They're general. They don't want to put any political spin on it because that's always hazardous. Mm -hmm. Steve Kerr said it right when he actually called out a Republican for what is going on. And I think the conversation we need to learn to have, we can't necessarily have it with a five-year-old, but this commentary was about talking to teenagers and you have to bring them out. Well, bring them out and say, become an activist, fight this. And it's coming from a, a, a sense, they're old enough to understand, they've studied American history in middle school, if not before, to speak up, to know where the resistance is coming from when 90% of Americans want some gun control. It is, I'm sorry, I've just had it with expert. I'm not, <laughs> I'm not talking about your current expert. He's quite coherent and I actually <laughs> oh, no, appreciate I under- what he's saying. I, I know what you're talking, <laughs> about, talking about too, <laughs> Leslie. Uh, I've yeah. been hearing you know, those things expert, too. Right. Yeah. Sorry, I'm really wound up. So yeah, no, about no. this. It's, it's understandable. It's incredibly upsetting. And I have three-year-olds who are going to be entering school systems. What? How, you know, you may have a metal detector, but if the guy goes running through, what have we got? You know, I mean, it's like, how do we really control this? We have to reduce the number of guns. And this next generation maybe can be the one if they realize where the blockage is. So. That's my comment. Thank you for letting me speak. (laughs) Well, thank you for calling, Leslie. And what Leslie is saying is something that I have heard a lot. And um, and John, I just want to get your reaction to what she is saying. In in many ways, this conversation is is sort of we did sort of steer away a little bit from the idea of how to talk to kids, only in part because what I'm hearing more. Now, even then, in the wake of Sandy Hook, is anger, mm-hmm. yeah. anger. Yeah, I, I, that's that's absolutely the overwhelming uh, emotion that I'm hearing from people that I'm feeling. Frankly, it's because this isn't new. You know, this isn't what we saw is not new. Sandy Hook was new. We've never seen, you know, children in mass at that age, first graders murdered. Uh, in their classrooms, executed in their classrooms. Well, you know, we saw a version of that this week again. Uh, And people know that it doesn't have to be this way. These are not natural disasters. This wasn't a tornado or earthquake or hurricane. It's not what this was. This is something that our society has accepted. We have said collectively, uh, we're allowing this to happen because of the trade-offs, because if we didn't allow this to happen, it would cost us something that we don't want to give away. And that is infuriating that we actually live in a society that's saying um, it's okay for this to happen. And we know it doesn't have to happen because it doesn't happen in any other developed country. It, it, you know, it, it is unique to America among wealthy democratic nations. This is the only place it happens. And uh, so we know it, it doesn't have to be that way because it's not that way other places. And let's be clear, as Leslie is asking us to be in our language in terms of who is stopping what is widely supported across yeah. the U.S. with regard to gun safety measures. Yeah, it's simple. It's, it's Republicans in the Senate. I mean, that's that's it. It's uh, there are a handful of Americans 
who are deciding for more than 300 million Americans what our gun laws will be. And um, to this point, uh, Republicans in the Senate have been unwilling to even take a vote on legislation that is widely uh, supported by Americans, more than 90% plus uh, of Americans consistently support things like universal background checks. Uh, you know, gun owners I talk to, that, that, that is the big misconception, right? Is that people think that America is divided on guns like we're divided on everything else. And that's not true. Typical Americans, even gun owners, support uh, all sorts of what people would consider common sense uh, gun legislation. It is lawmakers on Capitol Hill who are divided. And uh, much of that is motivated by, uh, by money. There's also a motivation that if I get labeled a gun grabber and I'm in a conservative district, um, I'll lose I'll lose power. I'll lose my um, uh, I'll lose office, right? And there's a fear of that. And it's happened before. It's happened before where a, a conservative comes out in support of some sort of gun policy, or even against uh, an extreme gun rights policy, and and they lose in the next election because they're they're labeled as a gun grabber or anti-gun. They're you know a friend of Obama's, um, and to this point they're not willing to take on the political risk. They're just not. Uh, so that's why we are um, having this conversation. Even with things like research into gun violence or gun storage, which wouldn't require gun storage laws, that wouldn't even require you to give up guns or to not buy as many as you want, but just to store them safely. Right. Yes. So, I mean, I've, I've preached that specific point for years that the most obvious thing we can do for our children is just uh, requiring gun owners to lock up their weapons. There are states that have passed those laws, you know, child access laws, that you know the strongest versions of those um, will. Uh, if somebody's negligent with a gun, you can you know they're charged with a felony, and that is what happened in Oxford. The parents in Oxford were charged with um, involuntary manslaughter uh, because of their alleged negligence. Uh, but we still are not having those conversations in the Senate, those are still laws that there is just no willingness uh, to this point to consider. John Woodrow Cox is an enterprise reporter for The Washington Post and author of the book, Children Under Fire, An American Crisis. We want to hear from you, how you and the people you know are reacting to Ubaldi. How are you taking care of each other? What do you want to see change? Email us, forum at kqed.org. Post your thoughts on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. We're at KQED Forum. More after the break. I'm Mina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. 
This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking about the school shooting in Uvalde, Texas, where a gunman opened fire in a classroom at Robb Elementary, killing 19 children and two teachers, and the impact that mass shootings are having on you and also on survivors, the families, the friends, and loved ones of the victims. Let me go to Leslie in San Francisco. Hi, Leslie. Hi. Um, I'm a teacher, and I've taught in my career fifth graders and seventh graders. And our school um, has wonderful protocols. Every um, month we have a new drill. And um, of our rotation of five drills, one is an active shooter drill. And so two times a year I would be talking to my kids about where we would be going and barricading the door. And if we could, we'd run away or all the things that we would have to do. And uh, they would always have very intelligent responses to me saying, well, you know, they've got a gun. They're just going to, you know, shoot us all. And so I'd have to keep um, reassuring them. And I'm just tired of us having to terrorize our children. Um, even the ones who aren't in a shooting or don't know anybody who's been shot, all of this keeps happening over and over, and they know it's a possibility. So as your prior Leslie said, hopefully that next generation who's been through all these drills through their whole school careers um, have a, a, a much a more intelligent response to our situation. We definitely need background checks. Um, that's uh, very minor. Um, we need to ban these assault weapons um, and, and just stop terrorizing our children. <laughs> anyway, thank you. Thank you. Michelle writes, asking children to fight for their own right to live is unthinkable to me. Putting the burden on them to be activists feels like telling them they can change the landscape, even though we've tried for years. Lobby money changes the landscape. Lobby money isn't going anywhere. The NRA and its darling Congress have blood on their hands. John, we we touched on this, but could you just say a little bit more about what you learned about the broad ripple effect? You talked about the immediate sort of reaction and sometimes really horrific reactions that kids have who are even very far away from this by doing things like lockdown drills and so on. But but what do you mean by that? What is that broader long-term effect after a child is close to a mass shooting? It's, it's often hard to predict, you know, which kids will um, struggle and which kids will uh, uh, maybe do okay in the beginning and then might struggle later. It's a thing that researchers still haven't figured out why um, different children react in different ways. Um, but certainly in my experience, uh, kids have dealt years later um, still with nightmares, with uh, debilitating PTSD, with uh, uh, having to take uh, antipsychotics and antidepressants, not being able to go back to school again, still being triggered by noises, being triggered by, by words, being triggered by, um, you know, hearing about the next shooting. Uh, and, and it can be, um, it can be debilitating to their entire life. You know, the, the ability to, to have normal relationships and to, um, do well in school. And, uh, you know, I, I knew a, um, a woman from, uh, Columbine, uh, a survivor of Columbine, who was unharmed in that shooting, and she went on to become a psychologist. And uh, she still deals with the trauma all these years later, and even on her own. She, it took her a long time to go get therapy because she she was too guilty to go get therapy because she one of her best friends died. So she thought, well, I don't deserve it, right? So the 
the complexity of the trauma is uh, immense and, and it will last in some way forever. It is not something that they will uh, entirely ever shake. Well, Kirsten writes, the first shooting I really remember intensely is Columbine, but I remember reading news of Thurston High School in Oregon. I now live down the road from there and have heard a survivor speak about the way that shooting has wreaked havoc on her whole life. Are we doing enough in terms of services for kids who are experiencing this or for people who are who are around this? Um, do you know, John? I mean, we're not. We're, we're not. Consistently, we're, fa- you know, we're failing children in schools and teachers in two ways. We're failing to stop the events from occurring, and then we're failing to su- properly support them uh, after the fact. Um, you know, there is sometimes that the, you know, the state will send in therapists and therapy dogs, uh, but uh, almost always there isn't enough for everybody. And, um you know, people are often left on their own to just figure it out on their own and to find their own therapy. And, and you know, therapy is expensive for a lot of these families. They, they can't afford to take their kid to a private therapist that costs, you know, $100 an hour. Uh, so they just never get it. And that is another societal failure. You know, we spend trillions of dollars on other things, but uh, we're unwilling to spend the money, even after we let these kids go through this and the teachers and staff go through this, uh, there's still an unwillingness to do what is right, and that's to um, give them every service they could possibly need. Let me go to Annette in Daly City. Hi, Annette. Hello. Good morning. Uh, yes, I just wanted to say that um, I have an eight-year-old grandson, and I'm and I walk him to school pretty much every morning. And today he said, on on the way, he said. I really don't feel comfortable going to school this morning. He said, I really feel I shouldn't be going today or tomorrow or the day after. He he is obviously, he's very affected by it. And the children at school talk about it amongst themselves. And I just feel a eight-year-old or any child, no matter what age, should have to feel this way on their way to school in the morning. And I just think it's, it leaves me at a loss for words, and it makes me really, really sad that this is happening over and over again, and nothing, nothing gets done. And um, that's really all I wanted to say. Well, Annette, I share your sadness. Thank you for calling in. Huey tweets, one of my biggest fears from the spate of shootings in the past 10 days is that we just become more numb to it. I mentioned earlier in our show in in the billboard, just, yes, we've had Buffalo, we've had Laguna Woods. Um, Today is literally the anniversary of the Bay Area's deadliest shooting in San Jose, John. And I remember when we had you on for your book a little over a year ago, I want to say that day, I think, was the FedEx shooting in Indianapolis, and then a few days right. later, that, that San Jose shooting, we actually had an assembly member on to talk about his gun violence restraining order on the day of another shooting. We are. There's so many. Numbness, forgetting almost can be a defense, but but how do we deal with that? Uh, you know, it's so hard, right? Because people have to keep functioning. They have to keep living their lives and raising their kids and supporting their spouses and, you know, going to their jobs. And, 
when something feels this helpless, people's tendency is just to turn it off. And, you know, the only way that I know to um, try to prevent people from doing that is to tell them these intimate stories, is to try to try to take them inside the worlds and the lives of uh, these people who are suffering. It's harder, it's harder to turn away from that than it is a statistic or something that feels, uh, feels distant. Um, but it, it is a thing that everybody has to fight. Uh, for sure. How do you report? You have to talk to kids a lot, survivors of these things. What do you do? I, uh, you know, I've never come up with a great way, um, you know, for myself to to manage uh, the weight of all these things. You know, I, I, I do believe in talking. You have to talk about it. You know, honestly, after, after Tuesday, I decided I'm going to start going to therapy because you know, if I'm going to choose to keep doing this work, um, I need to do a better job of managing uh, whatever it's doing inside of me um, and will do a long time from now. So um, I don't have a great answer because I think part of my job is to immerse myself in other people's anguish. I, I can't tell the stories the right way if I don't do that. But um, you know, it's tough for journalists, you know, the, the journalists in Texas right now, the work that they're doing is incredibly difficult. It's incredibly difficult. So, but we have to do it. I mean, that's, that's, that's our, that's our jobs. And I'm, it, it is a privilege to, to get to do it. And it's our jobs because of a comment we just got from Tracy like this, who writes in 2009, my son was seven years old and I worked for the city of Oakland when four Oakland police officers were shot and killed. I was shocked, scared, and saddened, and we talked about the events and the issues of gun violence with our son. Shortly after the shooting events, we noticed his appetite de decreased, and he was quieter than usual. And on the advice of his pediatrician, he saw a therapist. When we met as a family with a therapist, and my son shared that he was sad too, and terrified that I would be shot and killed too, this experience made me more careful about how and what I shared with my child, and it made me thankful that he had the opportunity to share his fears with professionals. <sighs> Thanks for sharing that, Tracy. Mm. Let me go to Deborah in Emeryville. Hi, Deborah. You wanted to weigh in, too? Hi. Yes, I, I just tuned in. So I'm just so glad to hear the conversation about the long-term effects of trauma as I've been living through that for the last five and a half years with my husband. And his was a medical trauma, multiple near-death experiences. But what, what I've learned is that it was very few people and, and very few, if any, psychiatrists really understand trauma. He was not diagnosed early on. And it took a lot of research on my part to find the right therapies and the right solutions. And it takes a lot of work, and I agree with the comment that very few people have the resources. Fortunately, we've been able to spend many tens of thousands of dollars on therapies, but it's changed the future for us. But he's getting better, but it's taken daily effort with very conscious, intentional work. Could I share a couple of resources? I really want people to know about Stephen Porges and his work on polyvagal theory, and there are interviews all over YouTube. You can get educated that way. And also Bethel van der Kolk, who's a longtime expert on trauma and PTSD, and his book, The Body Keeping the Score, and there are also tons of, of interviews on YouTube mm. by him as well to help people 
figure out the collection of things they can do that will help calm their nervous system, bring them back to a sense of safety, and get out of that hell. So thanks for letting me share that. It's just so huge. I want people to know about these resources and not go through this long, dark, scary period, not understanding what's going on or what to do. Well, Deborah, and also thanks for for sharing your experience of this long-term trauma, because that is what we are left with here in this country right now. Vaughn writes, with regard to school shootings, can your expert comment on why this is so much more common in the past 20 or 30 years? Any ideas? Uh, That's, well, so, you know, there were shootings that people forget about that preceded Columbine. That's sort of when it entered our national consciousness. But, you know, Jonesboro uh, was before that. Thurston High School was before that, which that was 40 years ago. Um, so it has been a thing that's existed. But we know, too, that these shooters inspire each other. They, they you know, one, uh, uh, each of these, in almost every case, they've studied past shooters and emulated them and, and, and you know, wanted to kill more people than they did. Uh, when we're just talking about the mass shooters, we also have many more guns. I mean, you know, guns, guns don't uh, expire, right? They, they just exist. So when a gun enters the market, uh, very rarely does it ever exit the market. So, you know, with each passing year, we have more and more guns. And we know there was a, an explosion in gun sales uh, during the pandemic. So, um, you know, I, I think that the pandemic has exacerbated it to some degree because of the separation uh, that kids are dealing with, the increased anxiety and depression um, that so many young people have dealt with, uh, and not having the access to the normal resources and the normal support system that they they did before. So, um, but it, it is it's hard to say precisely. You know, here's why uh, we we're seeing more and more and more shootings in school. We're talking about the impact on the people who survive mass shootings and then the broad ripple effect of the reality of constant mass shootings in the U.S. with John Woodrow Cox, enterprise reporter for The Washington Post and author of Children Under Fire, an American Crisis. And you're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Barbara writes, I am astonished that this shooter was legally able to buy several rounds of ammunition legally. Are profits this important? When I was in school, we had atomic bomb drills. Now children must live in fear of community members. And Anthony writes, my feelings about the latest school shooting, numbness, hopelessness, despair, avoidance, and a growing gut-level hatred for gun-worshipping Republican politicians. Are you hearing anything different in the reaction to Uvalde. I know it's early, and I know so many times there was that sentiment, maybe an expression of hope after Sandy Hook, after Parkland. Mm-hmm. Are you, John, after this? I mean, conservative lawmakers are, or have to this point said what they always say, and that's that you know the solution to this is um, to pray, and the solution is to arm teachers and to have more guns in the schools. That's that's you know sort of the that's always the automatic response, and it seems to be the response this time as well. Um, so uh, uh, you know, I'm not I'm not hopeful uh, that there's going to be a big change of heart or a change in behavior uh, among. Um, Republican senators, especially, but I do think that they'll be forced to put their vote on the record. They're going to have to say, 
that they oppose background checks and probably red flag laws. I, I think that Democratic lawmakers will force a vote um, to at least get people to say uh, where they stand officially. So, you know, that might it might be harder. I don't know. It might be harder to vote no on those things when they're when they're actually forced to. Well, Irene writes, as a nurse, I've seen a lot of trauma, and I still teared up seeing moms walk their kids to school today. When I went through a divorce, people would say they know what I was going through. They didn't. Politicians also don't know what these parents in Uvalde are going through. Dana in San Francisco, let me see if I can squeeze you in here. Hi, Dana. Hey, thanks so much for taking my call. Um, I have a question. It's kind of along the same theme that um, that the, the that your your guest there was just talking about, about kind of um, the the people are are kind of the Republicans and and the um, people that oppose um, more restrictions on guns are kind of sounding the same same tunes, and we're hearing the same um, you know uh, pattern repeat itself over and over again. So my question is about media coverage. Actually, I, I've heard this idea put out there a number of times as well that the media coverage itself and these exact conversations that we're having having it on the front pages and having it on the nightly news is keeping the whole concept of a mass shooting kind of alive in the minds of people that are mentally troubled. Hmm. And it's but, like, it's yeah. a thing that is a go-to option for them when they feel like they're trapped and they thanks. have nothing else to do and nobody's listening to them. Dana, thanks. We're running out of time, but John, what do you think? The media has gotten better at not glamorizing these shootings, not repeating the shooter's name over and over and over again. It's a lot, a lot less often do we remember the names of shooters now than we did, you know, back at Columbine and, and things like that. But there's no way that we can't cover these things. You know, we can't pretend like they don't happen. That is not the societal solution. We do know that they're, that they do this for attention, but we have to keep covering this. There's, yeah. there's, there's just no way around it. One thing I saw you tweet was after we do cover this, that it's important not to leave people in a place of despair. And I really appreciated that. And I tried to think about that for this show. And the only two things that I could think of is that I think of Mr. Rogers, who always says, look for the helpers. And then just before I did this show today, my husband whispered in my ear, there's good in the world. And so thank you, John, for helping us make sense of this again. Thank you for having me. John Woodrow Cox, Enterprise reporter for The Washington Post, his book Children Under Fire, An American Crisis. Thank you, Susie Britton, for this show and listeners. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.